0: Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, we talk to academic and author Michael Flavin about his novel One Small Step. Published by Fulpine Press, the novel tells the story of a young boy from a Northern Irish Catholic background growing up in Birmingham in the 1970s, and the impact of the 1974 Birmingham bombings. We discuss Michael's own background, coming from an Irish family in Birmingham, which he drew on for the novel, and his research into the Troubles, which also led to publishing the academic article Four Typologies of Leadership Applied to a Survey of the Provisional IRA in Sinn Féin and the Troubles. Michael Flavin is a Senior Lecturer in Global Education at King's College London. As well as his novel, his academic publications include two books on technology-enhanced learning and two on 19th-century literature, as well as several articles with a focus on disruptive innovation theory and the study of leadership. One Small Step is available from Volpine Press, and you'll find a link in the episode notes, Uh, You'll also find a link to the article uh, discussed, which is available as an open access publication. The Irish Left Archive is at leftarchive.ie As ever, we welcome your feedback on the podcast or on the project generally. You can email us at contact at leftarchive.ie We'll be back in February with another interview with a political activist. So, um, many thanks to Michael for talking to us, and thank you for listening. Well, first, uh, thanks very much, Michael, for coming on and talking to us. So we're going to discuss your recently published novel, One Small Step. Perhaps to begin, you can give us a bit of background about how writing that came about.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, basically around the beginning of 2009, I'd started a job I didn't like. And I started, it wasn't pre-planning, it was just sitting there at work. I just started jotting down some vignettes from childhood, some memories from childhood, Uh, partly as escapism, and partly to make myself look busy. Uh, And I think, you know, definitely 20,000 words plus just came out of that. And then they just, you know, sat on a computer folder, really. A few years later, 2016 to 2018, I did a master's in creative writing just for my own development. Uh, It was a two year course. And in the second of those two years, I just made a decision, you know, I'd always thought there was a novel to be written about or relating to the Birmingham pub bombings. You know, I'd I'd grown up in Birmingham. My parents were Irish immigrants. The whole bombings and the anti-Irish backlash were part of my early memories. So I set to work, really. And so a lot of those little vignettes of memories from childhood are still in the book in the first half. Mm. But then I just researched. And, you know, this is how I came across the Irish Left Archive. Was just as part of my research for learning more and more about the troubles and then just through each iteration basically by the end of that academic year so about six months of writing I had a full first draft of the novel Uh, that was kind of the back end of 2018 and thereafter just alongside my other commitments I just kept editing and rewriting until I felt at the beginning of last year just about 12 months ago now that I was ready to, you know, approach some publishers with it. And I was just very lucky and uh, Bullpine took it up. A very supportive editor who it turned out was from the same place as my mom and dad, which was quite <laughs> <a> <laughs> um, And yeah, and then the novel came out in September.
0: For embarking on that kind of research, had you a sort of a skeletal idea? Or is it something that developed as you, you know, researched the historical period?
1: I'd always been interested in, you know, in Irish history, but just as as, as a lay person rather than a, an expert. And, you know, coming from a family that was from down in the southwest, you know, Newcastle West, down towards the Kerry and the Limerick. There was, there was certainly a sense of, of nationalism there, if only a kind of cultural nationalism. Hmm. You know, I had an aunt and uncle who lived, who kind of appear then as fictional versions thereof in the novel, and I remember we'd go around there and they had, you know, Wolf Tones albums, you know, and there was one, I think that, you know, that had photos from the internment camp there. Yeah. So I was always conscious of that in the background. And I would have thought I was reasonably well informed, but when I started doing the really rather earnest research for the book, I quickly discovered how much there was that I simply didn't have a clue about. And so all the way through the writing, of one small step the reading was happening contemporaneously with Mm. that just and that's what fed forward then into the academic journal article that i've had published on the troubles back end of last year as well
2: maybe give an outline of the plot of the novel um in general terms obviously so people can uh, get a sense of where it's coming from
1: yeah so look there's a central character who's a young boy called danny And he's fairly typical. You know, he lives with his mom and dad and his big sister. They're, uh, you know, an Irish Catholic family growing up in Birmingham. I don't think he's got any consciousness of any threat. You know, life's chugging along quite nicely. He has school. He's a bit of a daydreamer, quite a voracious reader of science fiction. But then he starts to become aware of this thing called the Troubles. And, And basically it's as the provisional IRA mainland campaign starts around, you know, sort of 73, 74, that he just becomes aware of things. You know, so, you know, a bomb goes off in a pub, in, you know, in pubs in Guildford. And then later a a bomb goes off much closer to home in Coventry. And it's as though the troubles, you know, Danny's just there, but bit by bit as the troubles become more pervasive and as they spread further, they just start to be that, shadow that impinges over him and then eventually falls in on him with the bombings and their aftermath
2: yeah and much of his character was drawn in a sense from your own experience wasn't it
1: yeah i mean one of the things he's a big fan of is these science fiction books by some old boy called hugh waters right Uh, where we lived in birmingham there was you know um, birmingham doesn't have Sorry to sound like I'm lacking in civic pride, but I mean, Birmingham didn't have an enormous amount to recommend it at the time. There was a very big library there. Mm -hmm. But then there were these smaller kind of satellite libraries and there was one in walking distance of my house that didn't have much but had these science fiction books by this guy called hugh walters right so from the west midlands so probably had had a cozy word with the librarian about getting them in (laughs) and so i I read all of those and yeah you know i was very taken by that i think what danny does with that which i didn't was it then becomes this way of trying to work through these things that are happening in his life that he doesn't understand because You know, the bombings happen, the anti-Irish backlash happens. But at the same time, his family, internal tensions in his family start to surface as well. Mm -hmm. Now, You know, Danny is the innocent child, not the experienced adult. And he can't really decode these things on the level on which they're actually taking place. Mm -hmm. So he starts running this writing, this surrogate space story in his head. And it becomes the stage on which these issues get dramatized and played through. And this is how Danny engages with what's happening in his life.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's an there's, uh, overt reference to, say, The Brigadier from Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Unit, and uh, I mean, things I'd remember, because I think we're of a like age. And uh, uh, what I was interested in, was and it's funny you say about UNEXA, the UNEXA books, which Danny is very much a fan of, and you were obviously, because I was also a voracious reader of science fiction at that time, and I never heard of them. I don't think, I've been thinking, I've been playing with this in my head, trying to think, did I read one? Now, I may have read one in the midst of time, but I don't recall it. So clearly the author had a fantastic way of getting uh, those into the into the local libraries. But mm-hmm. it, it, but I, I think one of the key angles for me reading the book was, and it's called One Small Step, obviously a reference to the moon and the lunar landings, is something that you capture so uh, powerfully and perhaps you expand on this is just how important that was to people uh, young people at that point in time I mean it was it was the backdrop to our lives to a certain extent wasn't it
1: yeah it was and the fact that you know Danny's reading is one thing but then you know there's the thing these little cards that come in packets of pg tips that have this you know I I mean I've got a dim memory of those things as a kid you know and the you know the, the television coverage yeah it was you know and meanwhile you had the cold war brewing and space becomes a potential theater for that so yeah, it was a, it was very much an all-pervasive cultural thing that was happening. At one point near the end of the book, he makes this reference to an American and Russian sp- you know crew meeting in space mm. and very performative handshakes in zero gravity.
0: Yeah. Which
1: again I remember, but by that stage, I think Danny's becoming of of necessity very wise, very quickly. Yeah. And and I think at the back end of the novel, there's these kind of his take on it is less innocent, it's less naive, it's, it's more... In a way, he's young to be cynical, but then some of the transformative experiences he goes through in the novel second half, I think, create that yeah. cynicism and cynicism. And, and part of what I'm trying to indicate towards the end is Danny's possibly even getting radicalised, but mm. not of anything innate, but as a product of the experiences he's undergone with the bombings and then the anti-Irish backlash.
2: There was almost a hint of, and I mean, maybe this is a stretch, but he, there's certain sense of nihilistic or almost a sort of proto-punk kind of thing going on in his thinking and the mm. way he was shifting in a certain way. I mean, certainly, yeah, there's a tonal shift around page two thirty as he gets that little bit older, but and and it's a dark shift as well. But the book, the book is an interesting one as well because I think it's kind of got, it's got a soft exterior, but it's got a very Harsh interior, and maybe bring it to the bombings. I mean, there's no you you certainly don't spare that historical moment from the reader, you know, there's a real sense that that's engaged with them very fully. And, and maybe, like, perhaps through your own experiences of that period of time, maybe to just talk about the bombings and what happened and how that well, I mean, for a start,
1: in terms of their representation in the novel, I mean. Uh... There's, there is no attempt in the novel to exonerate the perpetrators mm. of what happened, but there is definitely an attempt to understand because it's it's a thing that even thinking back on, I mean the you know the 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 Birmingham Six, they will have gone to the same venue, the Irish Centre in Digbeth in Birmingham that my that we went to, you know, mm. my mum and dad and me and my sister. Yeah. They will have gone to the same churches at, that we went to, as indeed will the people who then actually did the bombing, not the Birmingham Six. Yeah. So you'd see pictures of, you know, photographs of people on television that have been arrested, you know, not just Birmingham, but right through the troubles. And they look like people you knew because, you know, they look like yourselves, your own family, because yeah. of that similarity. That's so so cool. I think there, there was definitely an attempt not to kind of hold back in the description of the bombs Mm. themselves. And they're right at the centre of the novel. And they really are that kind of fulcrum or pivot point Mm. for for changing it. Because look, that was an abomination. I mean, that's 21 people, uh, you know, who who lost their lives there in a city that's full of people who are Irish, of Irish descent. It, It is the most extraordinary abomination to have taken place. So I can... But as a child, you know, you just kind of knew this thing had happened. Mm. You didn't feel that it was anything to do with you because it wasn't anything to do with you. Mm. But when you're the one Irish family in your neighbourhood, guess what? It becomes something to do with you because Mm. all the people around you, you're the Irish family. The Irish did this. And this very weak, therefore, feeds forward into some fairly hostile times that the birmingham community in the, the irish community in birmingham faced yeah. and really from the back end of 74 onwards
2: like you yourself um experienced people beating you up i think
1: yeah yeah i mean i was a child you know um and at, at the time yeah you're very frightened because it's but, but there's also this slight sense of mystification because you have no idea why this thing is happening. yeah, yeah. but i mean the, looking back i mean the point was there was my mum and dad sent me to the catholic school which mm. it just meant I was in a different uniform and walked a different way to the kids at all the local state school. It was never a problem mm. till post pub bombing where suddenly I'm getting thumped on my way home. I mean, looking back, you know, I was, you know, it, at going to the Catholic school with that uniform on. It, you know, if I'd been walking down the street, waving a trickler and wearing a balaclava, I couldn't have stood out more.
2: Yeah.
1: The point was, I had no idea why this was happening. And a bit like Danny, I went through these phases. First, I was resentful of my Irishness, because as far as I was concerned, that was the reason why these bad things were happening. Mm. I then, you know, almost became the reactionary nationalist about it. But then when I started, I think a bit like Danny, in second, I went to a comprehensive, but Mm. I can't say a great deal to recommend it. But I did find history interesting and literature. And, you you know, I became aware of this thing called socialism. And then you start to analyse you know, and and think about the colonial history, and and I think your your consciousness gets formed. You know, it's not there something that's like intrinsic and inviolable. It's mm. you're constantly getting reshaped by experience. And I think whilst Danny's trajectory is is dramatised obviously and and quite abbreviated, yeah. I think I went through a similar trajectory though, perhaps over a longer period of time and with a little more nuance.
2: Mm. And, and you yourself became politically active to some extent anyway. Hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that Danny does in the book is go to this shop called the Peace Centre around the back of our fences. Yeah. This was a real shop.
0: Really? It I was, was wondering.
1: Kind of, it must have been some 60s hangover. You don't get a shop yeah. called Peace Centre without yeah. some, some nod to the 1960s. But, yeah, you know, you suddenly, you know, the, the, the left-wing radical press, the newspapers were available there. Right. There was a, a ramp leading up to New Street Station. And at the bottom of that, you'd get, your, you know, socialist Worker, socialist organiser, sellers. And about the age of 15 or 16, I was reading those. Mm. I, mean, I still think even now I have no affiliation with any of those groups, but I still think now at least they're, they're engaging the young and trying to get people thinking and arguing yeah. and debating.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, you know, although the, interestingly, you know, I picked one up a few weeks ago uh, where I live in Canterbury. Yeah. And... I just think back to what they were, and now they use the words Keir Starmer. If you kind of cut that out and put the words Neil Kinnock in the, the rest of the vituperative po- prose around it, works perfectly well yeah. without yeah. further changes. So yeah. I think again, yeah, that that was kind of my own journey. Started to the left of Labour, but a, I mean, these days I'm a member of the Labour Party, mm. and uh, well, it's an interesting political time in Britain, I think, post Brexit, and there very interesting things happening at the industrial. Level mm. with all the industrial action that's taking place, and yeah, it's trying to hold quite a dogmatic line. But in the public perception, if it's the government versus the nurses, I know where all the safe money is.
2: That's good. And and you yourself obviously are involved in unions in trade unionism, too.
1: Well, I, I teach at a university in London at King's College, and yeah. I'm a union member. And again, there are active disputes, yeah, at the moment going on. But I think rather than see them in isolation, I mean, you look at a swathe of workers, blue collar, white collar, a range of everything from driving examiners to ambulance drivers. Yeah. Um, there's, an, I think, an awful lot of disquiet at the moment, I think. A lot of the time, when I'm, if I'm doing research for an academic project, I'm, I'm quite systematic about it. You know, I'll kind of start with the theory and I'll maintain a bibliography. One of my very few regrets about the novel is that I didn't do that. I didn't maintain a bibliography because I think I'd have a whole bunch of stuff that would still be valuable to me. Mm. I actually started by reading individual accounts. One of the ones that made the biggest impact on me at the back of the novel, I list a few of the ones that made a really big impact on me. And I read mm-hmm. Eamon Collins' book, um, I think Bitter Rage or something it's called. Yeah, uh,
2: and when I read it, I didn't Killing
1: realize Rage. he'd subsequently been killed by the IRA, you know, for kind of turning on the organization. I only found that on his Wikipedia page after I have read the book. When you saw how, as one individual, he'd gone from a fairly ordinary person to an IRA member after the paras had, ra- you know, there'd been this silly thing. There'd been a vehicle stop, him and his father. Mm. One of the army's sniffer dogs had taken a a very active interest in the boot of their family car and then a couple of nights later the paras descend on the house and they're all getting taken in and he's getting beaten up you know very badly yeah you know in detention they find out in the end the thing the dog was taking an interest in was creosote and when he's released he joins the ira and you can see how that radicalization that hatred is isn't isn't anything innate in Irish people, it's it, it was produced yeah. by the circumstances, and I think a lot of the early reading I did was these kind of individual survivors, or in the case of Eamon Collins, not a survivor mm. of the conflict, and just seeing how events had transformed individuals and what became of them. I think you know. Then I've, I've read a lot of the canonical stuff. I think Peter Taylor's book Provost, is still one of the best summaries of the organization that's out there so and then alongside that I was doing a lot of academic journal Mm. reading on anything to find and then your archive and I think the real value in your archive is just the people who were there at the time it's not written with academic hindsight Mm. but you know these are publications that are being rushed out hurriedly contemporaneously in the heat of the conflict I think it's a real what you've got there is a really vital source Thanks. You
2: you were saying that there was an unpublic from the archive which actually figures in the book, but I don't know if we should say too much because we don't want to spoil it. But which is it's great that that's there. I mean, certainly the immediacy of um the archival materials and not letting not having us mediate them. That's a key thing. Yeah, for others to read. Well,
1: if if you revisit that part in the novel, the bits that Danny is reading out. Mm. In your archive, it's an issue of Republican news. So I basically mm. printed off the entirety of the uh, newspaper and then just went through it and, you know, found a couple of things that were there and they, they get quoted in the yeah. novel. So, again, it's just that sense. I, I do try to evoke in the novel. I mean, it's, it's not an academic project. It is a novel. It is a work. Mm. of fiction. So you're trying to evoke the time and the place. And this is basically that Danny's parents buy Republican news, but then conceal it from their children. But, you know, a copy's just inadvertently dropped behind the back of the television and Danny picks it up. And that whole subsection of the novel for several pages is a copy of Republican news that I printed off from your archive that Mm. somebody very kindly volunteered. Great.
0: It's interesting that sort of um, the differences of, of that sort of qualitative approach, that I think when you look at a purely sort of, academic historical view of something it can often give the impression that that positions are always sort of intellectually or politically or um you know morally come to through some sort of idealized process rather than experiential and mm.
1: I think so i mean i think if you look at what happens in irish republicanism post 1962 you know, Cahill Goulding becomes very interested in theory. He has a, a kind of a mentor, Roy Johnston, who's from, I think, originally from the Communist Party of Great Britain. So that mm. does become quite idealized and theorized. But then when the on the ground com- conflict breaks out in 68, 69, there's just such a mismatch mm. between mm. that position and, and the immediate needs of the moment. I think that interested me was when the split first happened, the officials disparagingly called the provost the Rosary Bead Brigade, you know, because they were seen as a reaction Catholic nationalist faction with no politics. And I sense with some justification, Mm. in a way, in the provisional IRA and Sinn Féin, the politics came later. Mm. You know, the immediacy was a response to the violent conflict that erupted in 68, 69, and the politics was a gestation for some time thereafter.
2: It's an intriguing comment to make as well, isn't it, in terms of given the pools of support that the provisionals developed, to be critiquing them in quite that way is almost, you know, it's an odd thing to say in a sense if you two are swimming in the same pool trying to get presumably at least some of the support. Where else is support going to come from? You know, realistically, looking at the working class communities overwhelmingly uh that they were talking about in 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 the north you know i mean of course there was going to be a strong element of catholicism to them i mean it, it seems a little st- mm. cut your nose off to spite your face sort of in terms of that analysis on the part of the officials yeah
1: but, i mean if you think of the novel i mean religion plays a big part in danny's life he doesn't yeah. have anything to do with it but he gets you know i remember as a child it didn't matter what the weather was like you just got dragged off to that church every oh, Saturday yeah. and it put yeah. me off for life Pizza. but the uh, <laughs> there's that there's that sense of it, you know, that it's very much a part of Danny's life. I tried not to go that too much down the Catholic guilt novel of spending loads of time mm. in the professional booths. And there's just yeah. a couple of very small scenes where it's pertinent to the development of the plot. Yeah. But and again, I think it's a signifier of, of Danny's very, there's a kind of family crisis as well as the political crisis. And in the mm. aftermath of both, Danny grows up very quickly of necessity. And you can even see in Danny's case, he's starting to throw off those religious shackles, you know, and, and to think, you know, there's a personal emancipation going on there with mm. him as well. But yeah, look, you know, I, I certainly remember as a child, it going to mass was entirely non-negotiable. You know?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar experience. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Slightly broader
2: in that there was another religion involved as well, but uh, it didn't change things. And and again, I, I I was saying that my own family, my mother's from Birmingham. And, all her, her mother and her grandmother and all the rest were from Birmingham as well. So there's, it, for me, it's very interesting reading the book because I'd have a little bit of a little bit of a familiarity with Birmingham in not, not so much the 70s, more the 80s. But anyway, um, in terms of. And this comes to the actual lived history that you you live through. How long did it go on for that sense of very hard edged anti-Irishness? In the aftermath of the bombings
1: it went on i mean i i, I was speaking to somebody last chris or well, christmas or possibly the previous one about this and trying to explain it to them mm. and the best way i could summarize it was saying look being irish was not a good career move in birmingham in the 1970s and 80s
2: really you
1: know it was it was definitely. i mean i left to go to university in 87 mm. yeah i mean look for the, I mean, the, another thing that's real in the novel is the St. Patrick's Day Parade that happened every year. Mm. And obviously, after November 1974, there was no St. Patrick's Day Parade. That took a long time to come back. Right. You know, it wasn't a year or two and then saying, oh, let's, you know, let bygones be bygones. I mean, there were still Irish pubs in Birmingham. There was still the Irish Centre in Digbeth. It was still there. And mm. I mean, i remember being at those places. I mean... There were IRA songs in the repertoires of the bands that played, but it was very much, you know, the people who were there were of the community. It wasn't the place that had outsiders in it. I've, you know, I've got one point, Danny talking about being at the Irish Centre and when they play, I think it's the song James Connolly. Mm. You know, well known ballad that you won't need me to remind you of i've got memories of some old boys standing to attention there which in retrospect seems a bit pompous actually yeah. but, you know there was so it was still it was still there but definitely the the anti-irishness was was an enduring presence in 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 birmingham life not a monopolistic presence but mm. certainly an enduring one
2: would you say it's dissipated now mostly or two
1: i don't really you know, again, this was back, you know, I went to university in 1987, so it was very different from the kind of mass market higher education that we have now. Mm. Um, Yeah, I didn't go back really, but I mean, Mm. a thing that made me laugh a lot was, you know, in the 1990s where you had this fashionable Irishness and these so-called Irish pubs cropping up everywhere in Britain that looked nothing like any pub I'd ever been to in Ireland. You know, this kind of leprechauns and potatoes Mm. Irishness. Mm. So... Yeah, I think, look, by then, it had, you know, it had just become annual Eurovision victories and Father Ted. I think it did right. to, it become depoliticised yeah. and seen in more culturally friendly terms. And Jack Charlton probably did his bit to help the cause yeah. as well, really.
2: And, and I guess with the conflict itself winding down, that would have had some sort of an impact, too, and changing the perceptions as the decade of the 90s dragged on.
1: I still think, you know, this kind of, you know, the Irish pub and all the rest of it, there's still an implicit infantilization in all of that, you know, kind of mm. top hats and the, you know, the crack. Yeah. And I find yeah. things like that quite irksome, actually. Completely agree. So, you know, it's still predicated on, a, on on stereotyping, but okay, look, you know, you really? can't have that many centuries of colonialism without a residue somewhere.
2: Maybe we should explore how you wrote the article. I mean, because that seems a really interesting, I don't want to call it a byproduct, but a, 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 a document to write in a sense off foot of the research. Would you say that's a reason why I'm framing it?
1: Well, you, you said you wouldn't call it a byproduct. I think you can. Right. I, I write academic right. journal articles anyway. You know, there's doing what I do for a living, there's a certain pressure to to keep publishing. And that's, you know, just comes with the territory. Mm. And so a lot of the stuff I publish is around technology enhanced learning. And I also do a lot of writing around disruption theory, or more properly disruptive innovation, Right. At the Harvard Business School in the 90s. But so this, a lot of the articles, you know, are quite scheduled. And, you know, well, I'll write this article in this summer, and it's all, you know, mm. part of professional practice. It was after I'd finished the novel, I just had thoughts percolating in my head, because I just, being someone who's an academic for a living, I've read everything. You know, we we have a very good library of work and this mm. Senate House library, at the, you know, up at the University of London. Yeah. And it, it was just afterwards, these thoughts kind of crystallizing and percolating about leadership in the Republican movement. And so basically, and unusually for me, I sat down and wrote that article almost as if it was a creative writing project in that, you know, I just kind of let it flow. Mm. Well. And here's what I think. Mm. And then afterwards went back and did all the kind of academic development mm. and putting the references in. And there's a quote I use in the n- novel. The thing that really interested me was Edward Said. It's the closing, uh, it's the, the quote with which the novel closes. That's right, yeah. Because an interesting hypothesis I formed out of writing the book was there was nothing about the Birmingham bombings that created anti-Irish racism. Mm. My contention is anti-Irish racism was there all along. And in fact, what the bombings did was just surface that which was already there anyway. They didn't create anything of themselves. And Edward Said's got this quote about, you know, that British colonialism in Ireland dates back to the middle of the 12th century. And really since then, there's been this continuity of thinking in British thought that the Irish are somehow a savage and degenerate race.
2: Yeah.
1: And I use that as a closing quote for the novel, really, to to underline this proposition I'm putting forward that, the bombings didn't create anti-Irish racism. It was there. It just, they surfaced it. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I I used that same quote in the academic article too. And I think, you know, even when I was a child, you know, you saw Irish people on television or, you know, being made the butt of jokes Mm -hmm. by stand-up comedians. They were stupid. They were drunkards. That's a continuity of an ideology that goes back to the middle of 12th century and the beginning of Britain's colonial relationship with Ireland. It's published in Terrorism and Political Violence and it's open source as well, which is a pleasant yeah for an academic publication. You know, it's not firewalled behind any academic database. So anyone yeah. who wants to is welcome to pick it up, engage with it, disagree with it. I think that's all to the good. It's four typologies of leadership applied to the provisional IRA and Sinn Féin and the Troubles.
2: That's it. And it's, it's really fascinating because you take a view of the development of the provisional IRA in Sinn Féin through that period, 1968 through to 98, using four very specific topologies of leadership. So how do, how did you approach that in that sense? And what were your conclusions?
1: Well, this was the thing, because, you know, as I said, I was writing a novel. I wasn't, you know, mm. it was kind of, as somebody who does academic writing, I knew the difference, you know. So, I you know, I wrote a novel, but it was just thoughts after I'd finished it. They just wouldn't leave me alone. Mm. I mean, one thing that really interested me was why did the provisional IRA happen? I mean, in a way, it's an extraordinary kind of ground zero organisation. And so in in the academic journal article, I talk about, you know, the border campaign from 55 to 62, which was a fairly ignominious failure. Mm. And after that, the IRA under the leadership of Cahill Goulding, picking up the whole kind of left drifting train of thought of the 1960s and thinking, well, look, the armed struggle isn't going to work. What we have to do is try and identify mutual economic Interest with yeah. Protestant working classes, which just from the distance of the twenty first century seems shockingly naive, it probably <laughs> made a very lucid sense at the time. You know yes. the, roots, the roots go deep, and you know arcane Marxist theory is not a way to you know challenge those roots. Mm. So basically, when it all went off in the north in sixty eight and sixty nine, I mean you know the Catholic population, their traditional defenders were the IRA. But the IRA had effectively decommissioned post 1962, so there was just nothing there. So in a way, those who split and formed the provisionals were working from ground zero. They had Mm. nothing. They Mm. didn't have, you know, kind of the infrastructure to develop it. And some of the reading I was doing was just extraordinary. So, you know, there were via sympathizers and funding. They were getting hold of Armalite rifles in the United States where they were legal to purchase. And then through sympathisers, they were getting the armor lights onto the QE2. So the QE2 was then sail- sailing from New York back to Southampton, where other sympathisers were picking them up at the docks and from there getting them to the Republican in the north. So the QE2 played a small role in the genesis of uh, Provisional IRA and providing the means to get armor light rifles. Oh, and that that's was right. all done organisationally pretty much from scratch.
2: Yeah,
1: And you can just see what the imperative was, or the perceived imperative of that community, of needing to take action. Mm. I mean, an interesting thing is where Jerry Adams eventually came to was really no distance at all politically from where Cahill Goulding had been in the 1960s. You know, Adams did the movement in reverse then from the armed struggle to orthodox political engagement with a broad left-wing perspective. Mm. But the times, the late 60s, and Goulding's analysis were mismatched. Yeah. So interesting. You know, you look at where Jerry Adams and Sinn Fein are now, and it, it would seem to imply a political continuity. But mm. the culture that it went through to get there is just extraordinary. We were
2: we were discussing before we started uh, recording this, um how this whole area of the leadership of the provisional area and Sinn Fein, and obviously uh one can detach those two or put them together as one sees fit. Uh is in a way under-considered in, in many of the uh, histories of republicanism in Ireland. And and uh, the, the, the basic facts, I mean, that Adams and McGuinness, to take two, and Danny Morrison, I guess, is in there as well, and some would say Ivor Bell for an earlier period, had been involved at very high levels inside the republican movement from well, I mean, both McGuinness and Adams joined the official were yeah, they're members of the officials, I think, initially. that right, yeah, they didn't
1: officially go with the provisionals at all.
2: Yeah. And then more, more or less fairly sharper, she smartly came over to um the provisionals. But the very fact that they were there for so long in those leadership positions is something that seems remarkable. And I'm just wondering if your analysis I mean, you've got you've got position-based leadership and person-based leadership and process-based leadership, and results-based leadership. And was there anything about that where you looked at that which might explain that longevity on their part? Yeah, you I
1: mean, I, yeah, I'd hone in on the process-based leadership typology. I mean, a really interesting space in the Troubles is the internment camps, you know, from 1971 onwards. I think there were many young men who weren't particularly radical when they went into the internment camps, but were fully radical by the times they left yeah. the internment camps i mean if you know if you read the book about bobby sands you know mm. nothing but an unfinished song i mean really and you know his political education came through internment and the likes of jerry adams i mean if you look right back to internment jerry adams you know starts talking about the long war strategy in the early 1970s i mean he's a his, yeah. his long term thinking and incredible caution. I mean, it's a tiny vignette that when the provisionals first split, he didn't go with the provisionals. Mm. But I think if you just look at the caution with which he's always led, there's a great many things you can say about, say about Jerry Adams, who, by the way, denies having been a member of the IRA. Yeah. I've read a plethora yes. of material yes. on the IRA. I can only find one source that says Jerry Adams wasn't in the IRA, and that's Jerry Adams. Well, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's for him. But if you look all the way through his career, it's the opposite of impulse. And with all some of the chaos that was happening and the violence and the debts and depravity of that violence, I think really once we get beyond Bloody Sunday, January 72, it just degenerates. And then we get the mainland campaign in the UK. I mean, it's just absolutely monstrous. Until I think, I argue, at the end of the 70s, the focal point becomes the prisons. But all the way through that chaos, I mean, the, the, the calmness and the caution that, Adam's exercised as a leader, I think, is, is one reason for his uh,
2: longevity in the role. Right, even though that there was, I mean, there were, and you said yourself in the piece, I mean, there was a remarkable shift in 85, 86, 87 towards, with regard to abstentionism, which resulted in a split, and as you make the point, the original leadership decamped to um, Republican Sinn Féin and, and, and other groups, and Mm-hmm. Somehow the majority remained with Provisional Sinn Fein. It's interesting as well because uh, you mentioned in one point about how um, the endorsement of the political engagement was not an inevitability, that there were other routes that could have been taken, mm-hmm. um, but it was a strategic choice. And you also reference what Ed Maloney said about the built in tendency for one approach, be it political, to inhibit the other and damage the other, be it military. Or vice versa, but once and he said once the IRA set out to capture and hold public support, the logical dynamic pushed Republicans more and more towards contesting elections as the most effective way of measuring and de- demonstrating that support. Again, you call it all of that, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there's an adverse to that, which is the military campaign, if it had been prosecuted to a much greater extent, and in a way, Birmingham to a certain degree, I think exemplifies this. But there are other examples as well they would have lost a significant portion of their base. I think it would have been impossible for them to keep it.
1: I mean, if we try and detach ourselves, it's very hard not to have a, a gut-level emotional response to what happened in Birmingham and Guildford mm. and else, and Hyde Park and elsewhere. Yeah. But if we can detach ourselves from that, it doesn't even make any strategic sense. The mm. you know, provisional IRA is a working-class movement, and then it says, sets bombs off in places where working-class people congregate. Mm. So even if we kind of detach ourselves from all the emotional and moral dimensions of it, it doesn't even make strategic sense Mm. to have pursued that course of action. And I think really, you know, Danny Morrison, I mean, it was, you know, it's one of those great totemic moments of troubles with, you know, with the armour in one hand and the ballot box in the other. But as soon as you posit that strategy... You have to recognize simultaneously that the two cannot cohabit indefinitely. One is going to consume the other because they're just in such fundamental tension of strategic approaches as and once that's posited, you know, it had to it couldn't be sustained as both. And there's just this imperceptible movement towards the political, you know, away from the paramilitary. Yeah, the Ardesh of 86 where by this stage, Adams has has uh, Martin McGuinness, of course, perfectly capable of thinking for himself. But, you know, Martin McGuinness speaks in favour of contesting mm. elections in the Republic. And, of course, uh, Martin McGuinness has the credibility with the the ground level of the organisation and the roots and the base mm. that I think Jerry Adams never had to the same extent. But once Martin McGuinness is part of that leadership momentum itself, I mean, really, post-86, you've just seen, it, it, it really, the writing's on the wall for the... Armed counseling yeah. After after eighty six, I think, which then leaves these anomalies like the appalling business at Enniskillen at the end of eighty seven, and then we have Gibraltar in spring eighty eight,
2: and proxy bombings and such like. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you do say in the actual novel, and I think in the essay as well, um, that uh, some one strand of thinking was that somehow bombings in Britain, on the island of Britain, would somehow turn people against the events in the north that always seemed to me and I agree with your analysis that always seemed to me to be a stretch I mean the idea that the British people would say no I mean you know having lived in England myself I would have thought the tendency would be more or less what we saw actually sort of a solidification around the state and and the state will protect us and then giving a certain degree of license to the state to act in certain ways, which we saw with the Birmingham Six and the Gold for Four, and, you know, terrible, terrible travesties of justice. Uh But in a sense, not unpredictable. I mean, would you, would you tend to the view that those were, there was a inevitability that certain things would happen which were absolutely abysmal?
1: I think it's a really important point because part of what, My own view on this, you know, it's covered in the novel because after the bombings, I then have the arrest Mm. and torture of the Birmingham Six. Presented, It's not a kind thing to say, but my own view is if it hadn't been those Irishmen, it would have been other Irishmen. I think it was this need to have someone in the frame for this. There was an absolute imperative to find someone responsible for this atrocity. And I get it. The worst peacetime, you know, the worst bombing incident in, in Britain since the Second World War. How did you expect people were going to react? I mean, it's, it's one of those things about this. This is something I haven't got historical verification of. I only heard at the anecdotal level, because obviously I grew up in Birmingham's Irish community. Mm. But that was that a work colleague of my father's got taken in because he also, you know, he was involved in things like organising dances and gigs, you know, mm. in clubs and clubs around Birmingham for the families of the internees. Right. You know, this was this was you know, this was commonplace and he got taken in. And this I do this one I do know for a fact. The thing that comes up in the novel very early on is that there's a vinyl album of Irish rebel songs yeah. in the Cronin's family home. I remember it. The actual record was I called him Huey Maguire mm. in the novel, but the record was Hugh Trainer's Songs of Irish Resistance. We had a vinyl record, it had Boys of the Old Brigade on it. I remember right. that one. And after the pub bombings, he went missing from the house. Really. My parents must have got rid of it. They must have been frightened at the ne- of the next knock mm. at the door. And a lot of Irish people in Birmingham were frightened of the next knock at the door. Yeah. Yes, you know, it was the six, the five Irishmen arrested at Haysham Dock, and then the sixth arrested back at his council house in Aston. But there was a climate of fear and intimidation. Yeah. for the entirety of the Irish community in Birmingham. And the actions of a tiny number of people got conflated with the entire community. And it, I mean, I was a child and even, you know, I'm the one I'm getting thumped on the way home from school, but I'm still here to tell the tale. Mm, mm. I think for people like my parents, it was actually one of your previous interviewees, Vincent Doherty, mm. had this lovely phrase I've not heard before called the Giuseppe Common generation. Yeah. when i hear that of course i think of Pete postlethwaite's brilliant representation yeah, of, uh, No, he was played the father didn't he yeah Giuseppe yeah in uh, in the name of the father yeah these were people who were stoic and uncomplaining mm. you know they did the jobs that a lot like a lot of immigrants they did the jobs that the indigenous population didn't want to do mm. they were hard-working people on not much money trying to make their way in a country that really didn't have much time for them and, and in they're on this almost kind of horrible light of suspicion of all irish people in birmingham because in the popular imagination it had all got mixed together and those people the people who did it got conflated with the entire population and if you look at the structural composition of 21st century islamophobia in the uk Mm. depressingly i don't think we've moved on much
2: one one other aspect that struck me is very interesting and and it's particularly interesting knowing your own family background was the sense of northern voices in the book in the novel because so many of the characters i i think danny's parents are from the north uh, ones from Derry anyway at least mm, no. did you find it easy to step inside that voice or did you find that a stretch or was it again was that part and parcel of the reading that you did
1: yeah, it was very much research-based. So look, nobody from where my mum and dad came from would say the word dead on. You know, if they, if someone asked how they were, you know, that's very much a Northern Irish thing. And so yeah. I, I'd read texts and literary texts from Northern Ireland and just be attentive to voice mm. on it. So yeah, a lot of that was the product of research you know my you know my parents so there were things in it I mean I that's quite early in the novel I remember my my mum and dad found we used to use the phrase says the Brahmi as a suffix in conversation right you know so the idea that of pouring for rain my mum and dad thought that was hilarious that you'd use Mm. the verb pouring for rain right it was either raining or it wasn't so I think it was really odd because you know my, my childhood prior to the Troubles Intruding was just completely ordinary, really. Yet at mm. the same time, you were on some level conscious of difference. Mm. You know, we had the sacred heart on the wall. The story in the novel early on about, you know, the holy water font by the front door. Yeah. You know, so when I left for school in the morning, my mother would flick holy water on me as this one. When she first <laughs> moved to England, she did it to a neighbour, who was just completely horrified just <laughs> that just the Irish woman was chucking water on her. But, you know, the point is, if you're of the Irish Catholic family, you know what the holy water font is. You know what, you know, and we had the sacred heart. I mean, I'd lost touch with all of that to such an extent a few years, but one of my children was looking at different sixth form options. We went to a Catholic school Hmm. because you got all the iconography around the walls and it's like you're in this, you know, in a butcher's warehouse or something, (laughs) kind of the... The bloodiness of the imagery and i think <laughs> the Heart. terrified my daughter who says I'm not going there <laughs> and, and, and you just you lose it you know you, you yeah get it I think because I've been in you know I live in the southeast of England I work in mm. London um, I was at my father's funeral in 2006 and it, you know talking to cousins hadn't you know what funerals are like you see the mm. cousins you haven't seen for 15 years mm. and you do realize how far you've moved from it but it's just been almost an imperceptible glacial yeah. So I, I kind of sort of see it both inside and outside now, which is a creatively interesting space to occupy, I think.
2: Is there any area you think we haven't touched on, Michael?
1: I, I suppose the thing that I'd probably quite like to get over is, I think it, a point in the in the book, really, is just in the aftermath of the bombings, a, mm. a character arrives at the Cronin house who, at the risk of spoiler alert, has an involvement. Yeah, and I think on the one level that's personal. There's turns out there's some previous mm. with a member of the Cronin family, but on top of that, there's also the political because that character enters with a straight down the line, you know, quite binary understanding of the conflict. You know, advocating the use of violence. I mean, a lot of the novel. I mean, it's it, it's actually my fifth book, so mm. it's not, you know I've written, but it was by far the easiest one to write. And, it, you know, it, it did feel like it flowed, at least in those early drafts before the heavy-duty mm. editing kicked in. But there's one chapter where that character, Eamon, and Danny's father, Bill, have a set-piece argument where, you know, kind of Bill Cronin is putting forward, if you like, the Giuseppe Conlon position, mm. you know, and yet, you know, Eamon's got the, the, vi- the, you know, violence is necessary... And they debate the two positions, and I try and keep it poised. But I think it, there's this tendency to homogenise Irish republicanism, and I think that's a, that's just a category error because mm. there's been a mm. lot of tensions within it. So someone like Bill Cronin, like my own parents, could have the cultural nationalism of a record of of rebel songs in the house, like so many Irish families yep. it didn't signify any kind of political allegiance. Mm. And I think that tension, it's an, it's an interesting point of in the book. And it's one of the few bits where I felt that my academic self was present in the compositional process. Because I was almost just kind of bouncing mm. the ideas off each other without trying to kind of, and I want to organise it such that this point of view comes out on top. Yeah. But mm. I think for people who don't know the Irish community, I'm hoping, you see, on one level, it's a very local book. It's about the Irish community in Birmingham around the time of the pub bombings. Mm. But I simultaneously hope that for readers, there's something quite universal in it, too, because at the heart of it is a boy who wants his mom to love him. Yeah. But for One reason or another that love isn't available. Mm. So I'm, I'm and readers who've got back to me on it. I mean, a number of my students have read it who don't have any you know affiliation with Ireland and yet mm. can appreciate it on that level. So I hope it works on that kind of literary novelistic level as well as on the political level.
2: Mm. oh yeah absolutely and i think it covers covers the ground very very uh comprehensively i don't think it's didactic in that sense Mm. so Mm. i think that it avoids that trap
1: yes yeah i think that Uh, and
2: maybe in part that's because danny's voice is so strong it's it's like reading it's a very authentic voice i think from that period
1: I I think I think when I wrote the first draft there were only two instances of Danny drifting off into his daydream world where he's an astronaut okay Mm. and pretty much all the feedback I I, at the back of the book as well I credit a number of readers who were brilliant and really constructively critical and a, a lot of those early readers came back to me and said I really like the bit where Danny starts doing his parallel space story I mean really in the last couple of edits I was kind of thinking well I haven't had one of those for 20 pages so I'd best have you know (laughs) that kind of separate thing but again I just kind of hope that's something that works for people and it's very much you know it allows Danny to engage vicariously with with pressure points in his life that he can't cope he simply can't disentangle in the adult world Mm. so he translates them into his child space story so his enemies in the space story become the space powers yeah, because he's had a cousin come over, you know, early in the novel, who tells him about all the terrible things the British Army are doing in Northern Ireland, and tells him about the Powers and Bloody Sunday. Yeah. there's yeah. no way pa- that the, the the child can disentangle that. Mm. So in his the story that he's writing simultaneously, they become the Space Powers and become, you know, his opponents, almost in this Flash Gordon style battle against enemies in a sci-fi.
2: Yeah, where can people get this?
1: uh it's on all the usual points like amazon barnes and noble um yeah just uh pick it up you can get it in kindle format you can get it in novel format really as well you know i'm on the usual places of linkedin and twitter i really just want readers to engage with it as well and say what they like and dislike i mean you know there's reviews on goodreads and reviews on amazon so, yeah, you know, I want readers to engage with it. Feel free to agree, disagree, like it, dislike it. But the the engagement with readers is just the bit that means a lot to me.
2: It's a fascinating book and it's uh, a novel, but it has a very interesting political and cultural resonance as well. Listen, Michael, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk.
1: No, it's an absolute yeah. pleasure thank for meeting you.